Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Well, Joe, the congressional recess is over, and this week we wanted to talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill. And I have to say, even for people who follow this stuff as closely as we do, it's kind of confusing. So you sat down with the new Capitol Hill editor of The New York Times, Julie Hirschfield Davis. What'd you learn? Well, Julie knows about as much as anybody on what's going on at Capitol Hill, and even she doesn't fully understand what the strategy is on investigating the president and potentially impeaching uh, him. Uh, She did bring us up to date on what everybody's doing. As I put her in the interview, uh, she's like the teacher who comes back after the summer recess and asks all the students what did they do on their summer vacation. So she had a full report on what Jerry Nadler, Nancy Pelosi, and Adam Schiff were doing on their summer vacation. Well, let's listen to the interview with Julie now. Julie Hirschfeld Davis is the brand new congressional editor for The New York Times. She's covered politics for Washington for the past two decades, writing on Congress, three presidential campaigns, and three presidents. She is a CNN political analyst, and next month, Julie and Mike Shear have a new book out, Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration, the inside story of how Trump and his team seized on immigration as a defining political issue and have redefined how America thinks about immigration and immigrants. Julie Davis, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Let's start this way. If you were filling in as uh, the teacher and asking all of their students, what did you do over the summer? Give us a sense of what Congress was up to as far as impeachment and investigations Well, the House Democrats were really basically trying to figure out how to push forward with their investigations on multiple fronts. So they were sort of in the business of lining up various uh, lines of inquiry through several different committees. There are six committees that are looking into everything from the Mueller report and possible cooperation by the Trump campaign with the Russian effort to interfere in the 2016 elections to emoluments and whether the president has improperly profited off his presidency and kind of everything in between. So they're going along with their uh, various lines of investigations. But I think what we've seen them try to do is tie all of this up into one big investigative and and legal strategy to basically get as much access as they can to as many people and documents as they can to really be able to delve into this stuff more deeply. What we also saw, though, unfortunately, I think, for the Democratic leaders is a lot of confusion about just what they're up to. They have a really difficult political balance to strike on impeachment. A lot of progressives and a lot of lawmakers um, on the Democratic side on Capitol Hill really are eager to to go forward with it. But there are also a lot of Democrats and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is certainly one of those who are really fearful of the political implications of that, who are cognizant that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for it to actually go anywhere, given that the Senate is in Republican hands. And so they're trying to figure out a way to be at the height of their 
investigative and legal powers to uncover as much as they can about Trump and his administration without actually going down the road of impeachment full bore. And that has proven a very difficult balance for them to strike. So the House Judiciary Committee in the middle of last week held a vote. Uh, A lot of political speeches were made. What exactly did they commit to do? So basically, that vote was about setting the ground rules for an investigation that is already going on. Things like how witnesses will be questioned and how much time will be allotted, um, a way for the White House and the president to respond and be given due process um, as the investigation goes forward, things like that. It was actually a pretty technical vote, but it was also very symbolically important because it was the first recorded vote that the House Judiciary Committee took um, and expressly came out and said it was for the purposes of an investigation to determine whether impeachment are articles against President Trump were warranted. And it's also a very important legal step because it's something that Chairman Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is going to be able to point to uh, and lawyers for the House of Representatives will be able to point to when they go to court to try to compel cooperation with the investigation, whether that be through getting access to witnesses or getting access to documents that they need. Julie, is it fair to say that what Pelosi and Nadler came up with, and I'm sure there's many other players involved, was allowing people to define what's going on the way they want to, whether they're progressive or more moderate. Uh, And if that is the case, does that have any shot of working or is it just going to make things more muddled? Yeah, I think that's actually a good way to look at it. You can look at what the House of Representatives and the various committees are doing as a Rorschach test. And depending on where you are on the political spectrum and what your constituents want to hear, who you're talking to, you could sort of see what you want. The moderate Democrats, some of the people who are in these more vulnerable seats in districts where President Trump is fairly popular can say, well, we're not impeaching the president. We're just doing our job, which is to conduct oversight and make sure that nothing wrong was done. And by the way, and a lot of them, you heard them talking this way over the break when they were home in their states and districts, they're very upfront about the fact that they think that the president has acted inappropriately. So they'll, they can just look at this and say, this is in the normal course of investigating what we think is in- inappropriate conduct by the president. And if you're a Democrat who really wants to see impeachment happen, you have a target-rich environment to point to to say, the House Judiciary Committee has now voted. They're using the language of impeachment inquiry or impeachment investigation in their documents. So, yes, we're doing this. And that's kind of where we are. So I think it is very much geared toward you see what you want to see. But I think it's a legitimate and important question for Democrats, whether it's working as an approach, because I think there is a lot of confusion among the rank and file about just what this is. And frankly, a lot of frustration among some of the base that sees this going on and says they're trying to be too cute about this. You're either impeaching him or you're not. And this doesn't look like that. So a lot of times members will go back to their district and find that their constituents are in a place that they didn't know. In some of the more Republican districts that the Democrats flipped in 2018, do you have any sense that any of these districts with freshmen, when they were home, they heard that they want to be more aggressive on impeachment? 
or did people come back basically where the, where they left off at the beginning of the summer? I think it's obviously different depending on where you go. I actually went to a couple of those districts over the month of August, uh, one in Michigan, um, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, who is about um, an hour west of Detroit, and one in southern New Jersey, Andy Kim. They're both in districts like that where President Trump won and they unseated a Republican. They have much more conservative constituencies than most Democrats in the House do. And what I found was people are talking about impeachment. I went to one town hall with Congresswoman Slotkin. It was the first question that was raised. There were clearly many, many questions that the moderator had in her hand that she was trying to sort of summarize. And then they came back to it a second time. So people are very curious about it and they want to know what's going on. But interestingly, there was not really a any kind of a groundswell. And the people who brought it up and seemed most um, passionate about going forward with impeachment were people who basically said they'd been there from the very beginning, either since Trump was elected or they'd long since decided that this should happen. And it wasn't a case of I've just changed my mind. I saw the Mueller report or anything like that. Even the activists who came holding signs saying impeachment inquiry now weren't really letting Congresswoman Slacken have it. They weren't trying to pressure her. They listened to her answer, which was very much about what the House is doing to investigate President Trump. And they said, yeah, we get it that she's not ready to go there yet. And she wants to get more information before she comes out and endorses an actual impeachment. And we're okay with that. So I think if proponents of impeachment, which a lot of the activists, I think, were in this place in the beginning of August, thought that the recess was going to produce some sort of sea change or an awakening by Democrats who hadn't been willing to go there before that this had to happen, they were very much disappointed. Let's shift a little bit to the the substance of uh, what's going on with these committees. You've been covering uh, Capitol Hill for a long time and the president's. How unprecedented is the full stonewall of lack of cooperation from the White House, extending potentially to uh, Corey Lewandowski, who's scheduled to go up there, and there's been talk about uh, exerting executive privilege for someone who's never worked in the White House. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary. Uh, no one that I've talked to on either side of the aisle can remember a time when an administration has just said a blanket no to all of these kinds of requests. And President Trump telegraphed it from the very beginning when he basically said, we're not giving you anything. And so they have tried to make the argument when it comes to like Don McGahn, who was, of course, the White House counsel, who was a key witness to some of these episodes that were in the Mueller report that potentially could be examples of obstruction of justice. And he worked in the White House. So there's a precedent there for a White House to claim that he can't appear or should not appear, although he doesn't work in the White House anymore. So there's an argument to be made that he can't be bound by that. And he testified voluntarily before the special counsel for 30 hours. Many, many times. Right. Exactly. Yes, yeah. um, if there ever were a privilege to be claimed, they certainly didn't exert it then. And so it's a little bit difficult for them to claim it now. But they're doing that. And of course, that's being fought in court. Corey Lewandowski, as you pointed out, he never worked in the White House. So it's exceedingly difficult to argue in a legal context that he should be bound by those rules. But it is true. We're also hearing that, you know, there's a, a good possibility um, if they continue with past precedent, the White House will try to exert some sort of claim and try to stop him from talking about episodes that occurred when 
Trump was the president. I think there's a good chance that he will appear anyway. But Corey Lewandowski is also a witness who has more of an interest himself in testifying publicly than maybe some of the others do. So I think he'll be a different case. But it it should be interesting to see how they couch their argument if they do try to to prevent him from testifying about certain things. So assuming that uh, the Democrats have some success in court, which really is their only recourse right now, who do you see if you if you were doing programming, entertainment programming, but, but this is political programming, who are the stars that we potentially could see and what issues do they get directly to? Well, I mean, if they were to be able to get Don McGahn to come in and testify, that would be a huge thing because he is, um, again, a central figure in some of these episodes of – uh, where Trump tried to get the special counsel removed, distort the record about what he had done to try to get the special counsel removed. He was deeply involved in all of those things. Rob Porter, his former staff secretary, was also in the room and at the table for many, many, many of these conversations. And so he would have a lot of important information to provide. But I also think we've talked less and uh, Democrats have focused less thus far on emoluments. And there you don't have like a great person out of central casting to be your protagonist. Um, But there could be some very big revelations depending on what kind of documents they're able to get, depending on what kinds of officials they're able to gain access to, probably people that none of us have ever heard of, that could really produce some bombshells on that front. This idea of what the president has done or what his uh, companies have done to potentially try to profit off of the fact that he is the president. And that is a very rich vein that I think we're going to see Democrats really delve into a lot more deeply in the coming weeks. That was going to be my next subject. And I think the value of it for Democrats is the Russians' counterintelligence obstruction of justice is somewhat abstract. Grift and plain old political corruption is something people get. And um, I think it is a vulnerability for the, the president if they can make, even if it's a circumstantial case, that he's using the White House to help his company. Does appear, at least some Democrats have figured that out. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. One advantage of that topic for Democrats is that it kind of dovetails nicely with their political argument more broadly, that this is not a president that has helped you, that this is a president who's only is out for himself. Um, it kind of it melds with their overall message about Republicans, that they are not on your side the way that Democrats are on your side. It's a more easily sort of translatable thing, I think, in a political context. So if you believe, which I think at least some Democrats do, that the highest value of these hearings and all of these investigations is not actually to find a way to remove President Trump before his term is over, but instead to make a case against him and why he has been an unfit president this is maybe a more powerful way to do that than the Russia issue has proven to be. One last specific. Adam Schiff, who runs the Intelligence Committee, has hinted around the margins that there's still ongoing counterintelligence work being done. Do we expect to have any revelations there? What could he add to Mueller that we don't already know? 
I think that is the big question. I think it's really hard to know. It's pretty clear that there is still, uh, at least if you listen to uh, Chairman Schiff talk, that there are still kind of tentacles out there that could produce some revelations. And maybe we will indeed learn more about the scope and the detail of the interference in the 2016 election. And it's possible that we might learn more about the scope and the extent of ongoing uh, interference and continuing uh, meddling that has gone on since 2016. Um, And so that would be interesting and clearly add to the public record. It's not completely clear to me how that would tie in to the rest of these investigations, which are very much about President Trump's conduct, things that his administration has done, and much more directly tied to sort of his political identity and his use of the presidency. But depending on what he finds and what he's actually going after in his committee, it could tie in. It's just it's a little bit difficult from this vantage point. One one last thing on this. There are now an increasing number of high-profile former administration officials, particularly in the national security foreign policy area, Do you anticipate some of those people, the Rex Tillersons to John Bolton's to James Mattis, you know, being called up to the Hill to talk about their experience and the failings of this administration? Is that a rich vein for Democrats? It could be. I think it really depends on the willingness of some of those figures to actually be candid and forthcoming. I think it'd be a little bit trickier for them to compel those figures to come and testify. Um, they'd have to make the case for why they have information that you know couldn't be gotten any other way, that like could potentially go toward proving some sort of misconduct. That it would basically serve an oversight purpose. I mean, they have to they have to have a rationale that would hold some water there. Um, but then the other question is the Mattis question. He's he's come out with this book. He just did a big interview in The Atlantic and clearly is not willing or ready to talk in detail about the disagreements and issues that he had and differences with President Trump and his team. So it could be tricky to get him or someone like Tillerson to appear and then also to cough up what members of Congress would really be looking for candid assessments of what, in their view, are cases where the president just mishandled things uh, or didn't understand them or intervened inappropriately for reasons that had nothing to do with policy. So while we've got you, we're going to tap your expertise on a couple of other issues uh, that are facing Congress. What's up with all these Republicans in the House retiring? What should our listeners take uh, meaning from that? Well, I think the first thing is It sucks to be in the minority, um, especially in the House, where you can't really do much of anything as the minority party. The the majority determines what legislation is coming up, what gets voted on and what doesn't, how much time there is for debate. It's just you don't get to do very much, unlike in the Senate, where you can still, as a member of the minority, block something or insist on an amendment or um, get a vote. if it's an issue that your side cares about, that's not really possible in the House. So that's not a very fun existence. I think Republican lawmakers are coming around to understanding that after uh, this many months in the minority. And then the other thing is the landscape just plainly is not very good for them to win back the House. So they're looking at another two or maybe more years in the minority, which is not a very attractive prospect. And then thirdly, 
for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them, the prospect of running on a ticket with President Trump at the top of it is very unappealing. They saw what happened in the midterm elections last year when uh, they had a lot of trouble disengaging and distancing themselves from the president in districts and areas where, especially the suburbs, especially where, you know, there are a lot of independent or swing voters, where the president is really not popular, where his rhetoric really turns people off and alienates them. He's talking about all kinds of racially charged issues, um, very tough rhetoric on immigration, some of these things that are just not what their voters want to hear about. And so... Looking ahead to next year, I think some of them make the calculation that they would just rather not not try to toe that balance, that it's too difficult. You get asked about his every tweet, his every decision, his every comment that might be controversial, and it's just not a very appealing prospect if you are on the bubble at all about whether you want to stay. So I think all of those things are in play. Of course, Republicans also have term limits, so... If you've been a committee chairman or a ranking member on a committee for three terms, you can't do that again the next time around. And that's a calculated strategy by Republicans. But in a few of these cases, I think that is pushing people to make the decision that, you know, if I came back, I'm not really going to have much of a perch to make any difference or have any input. So I think I'll just throw in the towel. I'm interested in picking up on one thing in there, which is not being comfortable being on the ticket with Trump. You've been watching Congress for a long time. Have you ever seen a party, Democrat or Republican, that was this reticent in taking on the the president? I mean, I certainly haven't. And maybe when you're sitting in the White House, you're very sensitive to Democrats attacking you or even questioning you. But it it just strikes me as um, unprecedented that very outspoken, strong-willed members of Congress and the Republican Party, particularly in the Senate, have just gone silent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And we just saw an example of that um, this week when Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, you know, was asked about President Trump endorsing him. He's a person who has compared President Trump to David Duke and basically made a big speech uh, around the Kavanaugh hearings about how the president was unfit for this moment and he can't lead us. All he can do is divide us. And then he gets Trump's endorsement and he's completely silent. He doesn't want to speak up because it is really the party of Trump. And there is a huge amount of fear about challenging him. And I think that's also at play in some of these retirements. You have Republicans who understand that if they do want to speak up or say anything that even slightly diverges from where the president is, they could get a primary opponent and then they'd be gone. So it's really an uncomfortable position for them to be in. It doesn't leave much room for diversity of opinion in the party. I guess they could take uh, Mark Sanford's route and get primary defeated and then he takes on Trump and runs for president. Right. But that's a perfect example, right? He, He got primaried and then the person who won didn't actually win that seat. So it's pushing the party to a place where they can't win some of these elections. Right. So it is the Trump Republican Party. Do you see the Trump Republican Party and the Trump Republican Senate doing anything on guns over the next couple of months? Well, I hate to be a cynic, but I really do not. We're told that President Trump, who's been in talks with Republican and Democratic senators, is going to come out at some point soon, could be as early as now. Uh, You never know with him. 
but with some package of, of gun safety measures that he would endorse. But I think what we've seen in the recent past, in the more distant past, is just a complete lack of ability on the part of lawmakers to come together on this issue. And the fact that President Trump has been so kind of mixed in his messaging about what he's willing to accept and how far he's willing to go in breaking with the gun rights advocates and the NRA, that just makes it that much harder because you have a situation where Republicans are completely unwilling to go out on any limb that they think might get sawed off by Trump. And that is a very real possibility that they've experienced many times in the past. So Democrats pushed through their kind of big background checks bill earlier this year. I don't see them wanting to retreat from that at all. Um, I think they consider that to be sort of a broadly popular position. If you look at the polls, vast majority of Americans supports that kind of approach. And they don't see the political or sort of substantive reason to retreat from that. I'm not sure I can see President Trump embracing that, having issued a veto threat and said he would never accept that bill. Maybe times have changed since the, this awful few-week stretch uh, over August and uh, when we saw you know, so many of these mass shootings. But for the time being, I don't really think the politics of this has changed. It reminds people why they're suspicious of Washington when you have the Senate majority leader saying, I won't put anything on the floor unless the president endorses it. And the president says, I'm waiting to see what the Senate's going to do. Right. Third graders can figure out that nothing's going to happen there. Yeah. Last political question for you. How worried is Mitch McConnell? First, that he's going to lose the majority. Uh, and I guess second, he's going to lose his seat. I don't think Mitch McConnell does worrying. <laughs> I really don't. I think that he is feeling pretty confident about his own race, um, given his standing in Kentucky, given the very powerful political apparatus that he has behind him. Uh, many of the issues we've been talking about that other Republicans have, he just doesn't have because he's been around for so long and people know him so well uh, in his state. Um, and of course, he's the majority leader, which makes a difference. Um, so I think he's feeling pretty confident. In terms of the Senate in general, I think he understands that it's going to be a fight. But uh, I think that Repu he and Republicans are in general are feeling fairly good about the possibility that they will hold the Senate and very much feeling like it's going to depend what happens on the top of the ticket in the presidential election. And some of them, I think, believe that if the Democrats who are the front runners now in the presidential primary, if one of them were to get the nomination, that that would actually be very good for them as Republicans in terms of their chances of holding the Senate. I'm looking at Adam now to see if I missed anything. Anything? And now I'm going to ask Julie, did I miss anything? Is there something else I should be asking you? I don't think so. I mean, the only other big thing that I'm expecting to see happen in the next several weeks here is another big fight over funding for the border wall and, you know, federal spending in general. And I, you know, I don't really expect to see another shutdown, but I do think we're going to go through another big round of um pretty bitter fights over you know the president's determination to keep spending money on the wall and you know push back from democrats who don't want that to happen projections came out last week that we're going to have a 
trillion dollar budget deficit uh, over the last uh, twelve months. So government spending obviously is going to you know come to the forefront again. And in particular, um, the president's plan to repurpose money away from military construction and um, the Pentagon's budget to build the wall. How's Congress going to engage the president in that debate? Well, they're going to have to pass a budget um, sometime in the next few weeks, actually, uh, if they want to avert a shutdown, which I think neither the White House nor anyone in Congress wants. So I think there's a lot of incentive to get a deal there, and they're going to have to figure out some sort of temporary agreement that will then get them to a place where they can make a a broader agreement. But I do think that the wall and this idea of diverting money away from military projects to pay for it is going to become another flashpoint where there's going to be a lot of fighting between Democrats and Republicans about congressional spending prerogatives? And should the president really be able to reach in and say, no, Congress, I know you wanted money to go here, but instead I'm going to take it and put it there. I mean, that's like a core constitutional function of the Congress is the power of the purse. So I think we're going to see a pretty vibrant debate there. And then Democrats just announced that they're going to have another vote um, sometime in the next month to try to terminate the national emergency that that Trump uh, declared at the border in order to be able to take that money um, away from military projects and other things to pay for the wall. And question there is not whether that's going to succeed. It's not going to succeed. But it's that how much political pressure can Democrats put on Republicans for whom this is a tough vote um, because it's essentially them saying, yes, I'm OK with you taking money away from my state because I care so much about the border wall. How much mileage can they get out of that? And I think they're going to try to exact as much as they can. It'll be interesting to see the the senators who are in cycle grapple with that very difficult uh, dilemma. Yes. Thank you for filling us in on what Congress did over the summer. We are now uh, up to date and uh, we're going to have, uh, as usual, not a dull couple of months going forward. Uh, Julie Davis, thank you so much for joining Words Matter. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. That was a great interview, Joe. Kind of amazing after all the horrible mass shootings and senseless deaths this summer. Congress won't take any action on guns. How is that possible? Well, it's possible when you think back to Newtown, where 20 young children were murdered in their classroom and Congress chose to do nothing. This is all based on not political facts. It's based on political fear. Uh, The last time uh, major gun control legislation was passed was in 1994 with the assault weapons ban with Bill Clinton's uh, crime bill, uh, the Brady Bill. And one of the results of that, uh, besides taking a bunch of assault weapons and um, ammunition magazines off the streets and out of stores, was the Democrats got their clock cleaned uh, in the 1994 midterm elections. And that created uh, the sense uh, for many Democrats and some Republicans, that you couldn't take on the NRA. There was a zero tolerance uh, for taking on the NRA, and you risked your job uh, if you did your job. That hasn't seriously been tested since. I think we're in a period now where it's going to be tested again sometime soon. I think the election will give us a hint on whether the NRA remains a major force in this country or they're a paper tiger. 
but I don't think anything will happen on Capitol Hill before the election. All of us would love to be pleasantly surprised. But when the Senate majority leader says he won't do anything without the president going first and the president saying he won't do anything until the Senate goes first, um, you're not exactly setting yourself up for success. Right. I mean, given that according to most polls, 90 percent of Americans support universal background checks, wouldn't it be tactically smarter for Republicans in the Senate to pass something, even a token bill, to placate the huge majority of voters? Ninety percent of the, the the public does support uh, modest uh, increases in background checks. But the question is the intensity. Is this a, absolutely a voting issue for that 90 percent? In the past, it hasn't been. For the 10 percent who oppose it, it has been. And the NRA has been able to drive that fear uh, through political offices, particularly uh, Democrats, over the last 20 years. My sense, though, is that this is changing. And I compared this recently to the debate over gay marriage, where you know someone who grew up in the Democratic Party, as I did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I couldn't imagine how we'd get over the hump of doing the right thing because politicians were so scared uh, of the backlash. And it happened so quickly that you only knew it had happened once you'd gotten to the other side. I think we're getting to the point in the country right now where this, whether it's 85 or 90 percent, it's moving up uh, the charts on what people think is important. These mass shootings just have a corrosive effect on people. Uh, and again, I don't see this fall being a time for political courage, uh, particularly with Republicans. But I think the election is going to demonstrate something we saw a little bit in uh, 2018 in the midterms, that suburban population decides election. Uh, the women within the suburban uh, districts decides election, and they're fed up. Uh, and this is something where young people and women and moms, are, I think, are going to lead to change. But we got to have an election first, I think. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. And the young people have already started to uh, make this their their single issue going into the election. So uh, I think you're right and fingers crossed. But you and Julie also talked about impeachment. And given what we've learned in recent weeks about the government money, particularly by the U.S. military spent at President Trump's hotels and clubs, like at Doonbeg in Ireland. Do you think that politically those issues are a better focus for an impeachment inquiry than the Mueller report? I think the Mueller report remains something that's a little too esoteric and, and complicated. Not that voters aren't smart, they are smart, but the abstract of obstruction of justice and collusion is a little hard to get your head around, uh, particularly if you don't have time to read 450 pages uh, of the report. Old-fashioned political corruption, grift, skimming off the top of uh, from the federal treasury, that's something that people get. And I think Democrats are increasingly in Washington rallying around the idea that the public gets that Donald Trump you know, has run extraordinarily corrupt administration. You can go across the government, everything from what's being done at the Department of Interior, what's being done at the EPA, all being done at the behest of big donors uh, and special interests. But the way that people, I think, will really zero in on it is, is he putting money in his own pocket? And that's why things like uh, the vice president going to Dune Bay, which apparently costs $600,000 in limousines alone to get the traveling party 
between the Irish resort town and Dublin, two hours away, uh, where the meetings were being held. And also this very peculiar story out of Scotland, where Donald Trump owns a very well-known golf course and resort there. The golf course is struggling. And one of the things that the local community and, and, and the Trump organization did is they got together and figured out a way to improve the airport so that more people would fly in and go to this resort. Well, it turns out that the airport's biggest customer is the U.S. military that's bought something like $17 million in jet fuel uh, from this place. And again, the entire sort of joint venture was to help Trump's resort. And then we find out that some 60 service members uh, have been diverted from other places, from U.S. Air Force bases and military bases, to go stay there. Again, enriching the Trump organization and Donald Trump. Does this put money in Donald Trump's pocket at the taxpayer's expense? Yes. That's something that people get. I think that may cause them some problems. Uh, it'll certainly cause them problems with independents and moderates in this country. And you're going to hear a lot about it between now and Election Day. Well, last thing, we wanted to get your thoughts on the debate last week in Houston. For the first time in this campaign, the debate was held on a single night with all 10 qualifying candidates on the same stage. Now, you've described this as a Seinfeld campaign where there's a lot of activity, but nothing of substance really happens. Was this debate any different? Are we closer to finding out who the Democrats will nominate to take on Donald Trump in November of 2020 or much the same? I'm going to contradict myself um, and because a lot happened in the debate, but we're not closer to figuring it out. We're further away. I think that's a good thing. This was the best debate, bar none. Uh, there's none even close. I think ABC, George Stephanopoulos and his colleagues did a, did a really good job of uh, managing the debate. But more important, you had the five or six candidates who I think have a legitimate chance of winning the Democratic nomination on the stage together. They weren't separated. It wasn't over two nights. Uh, and that was really important. There were a, a number of important stories that I think uh, came out of this that can help us understand where this campaign is going to go. Uh, so let me just tick through a couple of them. Right off the bat, you saw how Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren are going to engage each other. Uh, it's not going to be uh, shouting. It's not going to be particularly hostile. But Biden was ready to do this and he launched in his first answer, you know, with a very powerful line of, Elizabeth, you may be with Bernie, but I'm with Barack. And that was a way of looking at all of these issues and saying, Barack Obama is the, is the leader of the Democratic Party. And your proposals are saying that Barack Obama didn't get enough done. I'm saying that he did, and we're going to build on that. And I think there was, I think he created a divide there. Now, Warren knew it was coming. She parried, I think, fairly well. But that's an important uh, subplot to the campaign from here you know, on, particularly if uh, this becomes post-Iowa or post-New Hampshire, a two-person race. There is enormous reservoir of support for Barack Obama out there, particularly in the African-American community. And if you look at um, a firewall for Joe Biden, if he doesn't do well in either Iowa or New Hampshire, you go to South Carolina, Elizabeth Warren um, will have trouble in, in that community um, because she's making a point, at least implicitly a critique uh, of the Obama administration. Joe Biden, known in the African-American community and the loyal vice president to Barack Obama, I think will do uh, well there. 
a second storyline, which I think is critical, is we, for the first time last night, saw how isolated Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are on what seems to be the number one issue, which is how do you build on Obamacare, health care, access to health insurance in this country? Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are uh, adamant in their plans for Medicare for all that eliminates private health insurance. It's a very unpopular idea, even among Democrats. CNN had a poll out uh, last week that showed 55% of um, Democrats oppose Medicare for all if they don't get their private health insurance option. 60% of Democrats are happy with their health care coverage. Elizabeth Warren may be right. I don't know that people wake up in the morning and say, thank God for Aetna or <laughs> Cigna is my favorite thing in the world. Some people do. Some people may. I, you know, but, uh, you know, according to CNN's poll, yeah. 60% of Democrats are happy with it. What you saw, though, was when you had the 10 people on stage, just how isolated the two of them were together. Everybody else on that stage was against them. There's kind of a myth in the uh, media and the pundit class right now that somehow uh, Joe Biden and some others are out of touch with the Democratic base. The Democratic base is not for Medicare for all, as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren define it. The numbers are clear. And I think last night helped clarify that. I hope they'll now move on to other things I, I, on health care. I hope they'll move on to do what Kamala Harris did last night, which was, I think, one of the two or three most powerful moments of the debate after listening to all the bickering on Medicare for All said, hold on a second. The enemy isn't us. The enemy isn't on stage. The enemy is the Republicans who are in court right now trying to take Obamacare away from you. They don't want to build on access to health insurance. They want to take it away from you. They want to take away your right to pre-existing conditions. They want to take away all the things that people have come to depend on with Obamacare. So I think that was very clarifying. I think going forward, that's a problem uh, for Elizabeth Warren. I think Bernie has got his supporters. They're with him. I don't think Bernie um, has a chance in hell of getting the nomination. I think Elizabeth Warren does. She needs to reach out and convince people who oppose her on this to come with her on this or at least say, we'll disagree on this, but I agree with you on so many other things. That's going to be difficult for her. Let me say one last thing on Warren. And I say this in the context of she's run the best campaign. She's moved more than any candidate, and she should get credit for that, and her campaign should. But last week's debate also highlighted what her central problem is going forward right now, which is how do you get Bernie supporters without differentiating yourself from Bernie? And I'm not sure it's possible. The most loyal and devoted uh, voters and activists out there are Bernie Sanders, voters and activists. They're with them the way Republicans are with Donald Trump. Uh, and they're not going into place. Unfortunately for Sanders, it's only about 10 to 15 percent of the Democratic voter uh, voters. They may be about 50 percent of people on Twitter, but Twitter doesn't decide elections. Twitter doesn't decide elections. And let me say it one more time. Twitter doesn't decide elections. Thank goodness. Voters do. And and let me know if I've made that point clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. A couple of other things that I think I think were really important. One is what Biden's supporters were looking for in last week's debate was not a flawless performance because they're never going to get one. You're going to get some what I like to call crazy ass answers from Uncle Joe. Uh, and that's just the price of admission of watching the Biden show. Um, it doesn't mean he can't be a great president. 
but will he be a communicator in the same power as a Barack Obama or a Bill Clinton? Absolutely not. I also don't think you can compare him to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is just a, a serial liar. I compare him a little bit to George Bush 43, who I think his supporters felt consistently that he was trying to communicate. He just sometimes got mixed up and you know stumbled over the words, but he knew what he believed. It's kind of similar with Biden supporters. I think Biden supporters got what they were looking for, which is Joe Biden awake, alert, resolute, ready to punch back at anyone who took a punch at him. And he only had to do it for an hour uh, because he kind of disappeared in the second hour. The third hour, I think, came back strongly with a with a really powerful biographical statement about the resilience that he has with the tragedies that he's gone through with his wife and his children. Biden supporters around the country came out of that debate and said, OK, that was enough. And he can take on Trump. And he did fine. Well, we can't let you go without asking about the column that you wrote last week about how the so-called second tier candidates were the big winners last Thursday night in Houston. Talk about that and the other lessons we learned from that debate. Yeah, I think the the second tier candidates and by second tier, I mean the people who are in single digits. But, you know, that all along people have said they have potential. Um, And in this case, I'm talking about Beto, Cory Booker. Uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, and Kamala Harris. They all had really strong nights. Now, one of the things about being in single digits is it uh, provides freedom to go just say what you think and take things to its stream. So Beto got back in this race, in my opinion, because of El Paso um, uh, and it being his hometown and the, and the mass shooting there. He is now tapped directly into the anger in the most progressive part of the Democratic base, talking about confiscation of weapons. I don't think that's a long-term uh, solution. I think it's unconstitutional first. Uh, secondly, uh, the Democratic nominee in 2020 will not have that position. Um, if Beto is the Democratic nominee, I will predict that that position will be softened. But I think each of them in their own way showed that there is an alternative to Biden war and there is the potential for one of them to catch fire. The question is, we don't know which one. And it may be that they spend from now till the middle of the primary season fighting each other to be that one. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't come to pass. But as a, a Democrat committed to our party moving forward, I was very encouraged last night at knowing that if, you know, Warren is too far to the left and Joe Biden is not capable of running the sort of robust campaign that he needs to, and these are questions that we haven't answered yet, that there is an alternative there. And that's why it was a good night for Democrats, but we come out of this more confused as opposed to with greater clarity. The second thing we learned is three hours is too long. Unless they're going to do these things and have a halftime show and bathroom breaks, even for the young candidates up there, you could see them flagging in the beginning of that third hour and sort of all of the energy that was there for the first 90 minutes really sort of dissipated. And it was only um, uh, George Stephanopoulos' really, really incisive question about resilience that brought that debate back to life. That was the best 15 minutes as far as letting candidates to show voters what is special about them. 
not about what their policy uh, issue is, where they are on Medicare for all, like what they're made of, what's important to them, what they've learned in their life. And it gave you a window for 10 candidates. So I would suggest uh, to the next uh, debate, which is CNN and the New York Times in Columbus, Ohio, on October 15th, that they don't go three hours. I'd also suggest it's time to move away from the debates we've had. They seem to be going over the same issues because they can find some conflict uh, and, and differences between. There are a whole series of issues they haven't touched. We've gone through six debates without a question about reproductive rights, which is absolutely insane. The CNN Des Moines Register poll showed reproductive rights being the number one issue among Iowa Democrats planning to attend a caucus. So you know the candidates have something to say on it, but for some reason it hasn't come up. We haven't done foreign policy, period. Climate change has been done in a kind of peripheral way. So I would suggest to my colleagues at CNN and to Mark Lacey, the national editor of the New York Times, will be one of the moderators who is a, uh, an excellent journalist, that we really try to make this one different. Allow the candidates to talk a little bit longer – uh, than a minute and really try to give them uh, the opportunity that George Stephanopoulos gave them at the end to show who they are, to give voters a chance to look at them in a slightly different way. If they decide not to, please don't go three hours. It's too long. Even the most interested people, I, I include myself in it, in that last hour, wanted to be any place. In fact, I almost wanted to turn on Carolina against Tampa Bay. Huh. And that game sucked. So two hours. That's the most. Well, we'll see if they take your advice for the next one. Uh, That's all we've got for you this week, Joe. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Katie. Adam, I know you wanted to tell our listeners about a great new podcast. Yes, Katie. It's the 2020 election ride home. Some have called the 2020 election a battle for America's soul. Well, if you want to keep up with the latest developments on that important battle, this is the podcast for you. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail that day. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What the polls say? It's a 15 to 20-minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be looking at your phone 12 times a day. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, Search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. It's a great listen. That's the Election Ride Home podcast every day at 5 p.m. available from your podcast provider. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.